Welcome to JP Morgan's Global Data Pod. I'm Nora Santivani, and joining me today, I have Nikolai Alexandru and Katie Marney. Hi, both of you. Welcome. Hi, Nora. Hey, Hello, it's good Nora. to be back. Yes, thanks. It's good to have you back. Uh, so today we are going to do a research wrap discussing vulnerabilities in the EM edge countries. Uh, where do we see the pressure points in what looks to be an increasingly challenging global macro environment? We have the backdrop of higher interest rates, expected slowdown in growth that you know, ultimately we see culminating in a US recession towards the end of the year. Um, so the two of you have written a series of research notes on the EM edge region related to this topic. And you know, there are a number of themes that you hit on that I think resonated with, with me as I think about the broader global outlook and, and the outlook for the major emerging market economies, but also there were also some clear differences that I hope we can tease out in, in today's discussion. But maybe before we dive in, it's probably helpful to our listeners to explain what we mean by the EM edge. Uh, sure, I can, I can take that one, uh, Nora. So about a year ago, we within the, the JP Morgan economics team launched a new publication called the EM edge. Uh, and it's loosely um, a set of, um, you know, it's, it's a really a di diverse set of countries in reality. So we have um, you know, oil producing economies in the GCC and frontier markets that are really on the edge um, of, of distress and, you know, everywhere in between. Um, and so, you know, our goal, you know, there isn't really a, um, there isn't really a, you know, a common, you know, level of income between these economies, you know, trade structure. It's really a diverse set that can, that spans from Latin America to, um, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Eastern Europe, and then, um, you know, South Asia and, and even, you know, out to Mongolia and Vietnam. Um, so, right. so that's the EMH for you. Yeah. Okay. So, but fairly large group of countries, around 30 countries, uh, as you say, and well, I guess what unifies them is we don't cover them in our flagship global data watch, but we cover them separately in the EM Edge uh, data watch. All right. So in, in the, the last research wrap I did, which was about two weeks ago, uh, we discussed the kind of post-pandemic uh, rise in fiscal deficits, public debt ratios, and sort of debt sustainability challenges in the major EM economies. And, you know, we were talking about countries like India, Brazil, South Africa, and how they face quite a challenging path to, to debt sustainability. But the other thing that we've been noting is that for the major EM countries, actually this group of countries have been pretty resilient, right? Growth has held up quite strongly, much more strongly than we expected in the face of um, you know, multitude adverse shocks that have hit emerging markets. And uh, we had ascribed that resilience to several factors, but one of the main ones was um, excess domestic savings of the private sector that has helped to finance wider fiscal deficits and therefore kept external balances uh, relatively contained. The other, other factor we had emphasized is fairly contained debt service burdens despite high interest rates. So, you know, as a result of that, major EMs, they hadn't faced as much market pressure perhaps as one would have expected given the shocks. Now, when we turn to the EM edge, clearly we can't say the same thing, right? We've uh, seen a wave of uh, debt restructurings, sovereign debt stress. So uh, Katie, maybe starting with you, uh, from a macro perspective, 
what do you think makes the EMH countries more susceptible to stress in the current environment, especially relative to the, the sort of more major EM economies that we cover? Yeah, thank you, Nora. So as I said, you know, at the outset, this is really a diverse set of economies. But I think that, you know, a common thread for many of these economies is the low stock of domestic savings and shallow domestic capital markets, such that, you know, where it's needed to fund, you know, twin, um, you know larger fiscal, fiscal spending, larger debt stocks, um, they're dependent on foreign funding to cover these needs. Um, so as such, you know, many of these names, particularly in the single B space, so some of these, you know, some of the smaller African names, um, you know, Ecuador and Latin America, um, you know, they've they've lost they've lost they have lost market access, or the cost of funding has risen has risen so high um, that it's you know prohibitively expensive um, for them to tap markets. Um, and that is, you know, significantly different from what we're seeing in, you know, other parts of EM where, you know, the investment grade credits are still managing to tap markets, albeit at higher rates. Uh, Moreover, you know, following the pandemic, uh, fundamental metrics for these economies, um, you know, inflation, uh, fiscal deficits, current account deficits, particularly for some of the Im uh, commodity importers, um, and then and debt levels as well are, are higher than, than would be comfortable, um, you know, certainly mm -hmm. higher in many cases than what we see in the kind of the major EM economies, um, you know, with inflation, we're talking in most cases in the, in the high, uh, high double digits. Um, uh, and and what I will say, there, but 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 at the same time, um, you know, there are a few mitigating factors, and I think this is important to remember. So you know, more and more of our EM edge economies, uh, again, those that are more exposed, um, have have IMF programs or they've engaged the fund, and so and often they in some cases they've done this you know preemptively, and so that is an important backstop to some of this sort of stress that they could face, whether it's on balance of payments or fiscal. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other side, of course, is that, you know, say for some of the oil exporters who might be exposed to lower oil prices, they've got, they've built up, you know, strong buffers, be it the GCC and some of the CIS countries that Nikolai covers. Mm. Um, so again, I think it's, you know, um, while these, these are exposed, you know, there are some, you know, there are some mitigating factors that we should mm -hmm. keep, take into account. Okay. No, that's that's a great great summary to begin with. Uh, maybe I can pick can up. Can I just on add an idea, Nora? Sorry to interrupt. I mean, I think because I think uh, it might uh, add a bit of uh, extra color for this set of countries, right? And the the other idea is really about the presence of short-term debt to a significant extent of in the case of these countries, uh, the increasing share of domestic debt. Uh, as another factor which makes them a bit uh, more sensitive than, than others. And finally, uh, persistent and uh, wide budget deficits, particularly in the cases where, uh, as you mentioned, right, I mean, we're seeing that restructuring, right, in, in those mm -hmm. cases, right? This, these are additional factors which, which kind of makes, make these countries different than uh, the EM ones that you mentioned. That's right. Yeah, exactly, Nikolai. So that, that's the point I, I, I'd like to pick up on here is uh, debt ratios, right? Uh, as, as Katie said, and as you mentioned, that's really where a lot of these EM edge or frontier countries really stand out is in terms of just the stock of debt, debt to GDP ratios being significantly higher. I mean, for the major EM or core EM economies, we're talking about average public debt to GDP ratios of about 55%. Uh, outside of China. And 
that's up about 10 percentage points prior to the pandemic. So it's been a big increase, but, you know, uh, you know, I presume in your neck of the woods, uh, you know, things are looking a lot worse. Uh, of course, there are a couple of major EM economies, you know, South Africa, Brazil, um, India, as I mentioned, we're talking more 70, 85% of GDP for public debt. Um, and there are a few cases even in that group where things have deteriorated quite significantly like in South Africa. But in the EMH, uh, how much worse is the situation? Which countries or regions have seen the biggest deterioration in fiscal deficits and public debt ratios? And uh, where has debt sustainability either been achieved or where does it look increasingly challenging to you? Yeah, so uh, it's, uh, as, as Katie said at the beginning, right, this is really a diverse uh, set of uh, countries, right? But if we look at the regions, um, the place where we have seen quite uh, wide uh, headline budget deficit numbers are basically Africa and uh, Asia edge, uh, those two. If we look at uh, debt to GDP, uh, again, at the regional level relative to pre-pandemic, the numbers are actually similar to what you mentioned in the case of EM. I mean, we have uh, roughly 12% increase in the case of um, LATAM edge. Uh, the countries that we look at, uh, roughly 7% increase in the case of Africa edge uh, and less uh, for the other regions. But I think what explains why um, it's a bit more challenging, it's what Katie was said, right? The capacity uh, mm -hmm. to carry debt and deficits in these countries is smaller, right? Exactly. Uh, that that's that's kind of the, the the issue here. I mean, the countries that have problems, I mean, are well known, right? I mean, it's mainly uh, countries in um, Africa and uh, Asia. In Africa, uh, we have Ghana, uh, which is in restructuring Zambia. Uh, in Zambia's case, debt to GDP it's also uh, quite high. Same same is true in in Ghana, but not that high. And then in Asia. Uh, age, uh, we're really talking about um, uh, Sri Lanka and, and Pakistan. Sri Lanka already uh, undergoing uh, debt uh, restructuring. Um, these are kind of the, the cases to watch out. Mm -hmm. And then I, I suppose then maybe the aspect we should focus on here is the impact of higher interest rates, right? Because uh, that, that seems to be a problematic area for, for this group of countries. When we think about debt dynamics, they depend on several factors, the primary balance, uh, growth, but interest rates as well, right? And so for major emerging market economies, what we've been saying is that it's actually growth that seems to be the most critical uh, factor for, for debt dynamics and for achieving debt sustainability. Interest rates matter, but they actually take quite a long time to filter through to debt service costs in, in the major EMs. The average maturity of debt is about eight years. So, you know, that's quite a long time for, for, for those rate hikes to filter through to the whole debt stock. And I think typically this longer maturity profile of debt, it means that current debt ratios are not really a significant source of vulnerability for the majority of the EM countries. So in the EM edge, I know you two have been writing about the, the rising interest burden. Uh, can you talk a bit about the impact of higher rates on, on sort of debt dynamics in your region and why we should be more concerned? No, I think what uh, everything you said, it's uh, right on the spot. I mean, basically uh, what we see, if we look at headline budget balances, we, we don't see 
necessarily deterioration. Actually, in recent years, there has been some improvement. Again, I go back to Katie. She said uh, many countries are involved with IMF, so that's helping for sure. Um, however, what we see at the same time is that budget balances remain quite wide. Uh, so in the past, wide budget deficits were associated with quite elevated growth. Uh, and partly this explains why uh, edge economies were able to outperform. Currently, uh, we have edge economies actually underperforming. And to a significant extent, this is because uh, funding those budget deficits is not possible and countries have to implement uh, fiscal consolidation. Moving to the uh, interest aspect, right, given that on the headline fiscal balances things look okay, right, it's obvious that something else is uh, uh, putting, uh, uh, making, makes things problematic here and definitely uh, it's the interest burden. Uh, there are various ways to look at the interest burden. Uh, we looked at uh, uh, interest uh, uh, cost as a share of revenues. Uh, and we again compare to pre-pandemic uh, uh, developments. And if we do that, we see significant increases. Africa has seen the largest increases in the interest to revenue uh, ratios, uh, followed by uh, uh, EM Asia uh, edge. Uh, only kind of in, uh, in Europe edge, we don't see those sort of dynamics and obviously not in the GC. But in, in LATAM, there's been an increase as well. Uh, and what's important to highlight about this, right, that's it's not really a factor of lower uh, revenues to GDP. Um, uh, it's, it's really a factor of accumulated budget deficits and increasing public debt to GDP uh, on the back of that. Because if we look at revenues, uh, they are generally stable. I mean, we can talk a bit uh, later about them if you want, but before the revenues uh, discussion, I think it's important to highlight that implied interest rates paid uh, by uh, various countries in edge, those have not increased materially, right? So in some cases they have increased, but it's not, uh, let's say a significant increase, right? So it's, it's really uh, about wide budget deficits and uh, high debt stock, uh, which is driving uh, interest cost higher in these countries. Okay, I mean, ultimately, the what really matters for debt sustainability is the differential between interest rates and growth, right? The interest rate growth differential, and for for the major EM economies, um, those are mostly negative almost everywhere. There's a couple of exceptions like South Africa and, and Brazil. Historically, they've had more adverse interest rate growth differentials, where the interest rate interest cost is higher than the GDP growth rate. Uh, so clearly, that puts uh, the fiscal is in a much more challenging situation. So the trade-off is, is, is much more difficult to achieve that sustainability in those kind of circumstances. Um, and what we're going to see now with uh, growth slowing down, inflation coming off, is uh, this interest rate growth differential will become less negative, as in it's going to be, make it more challenging to achieve uh, debt sustainability or stabilize debt to GDP ratios. So for the EM edge, what's the situation there? Like, what are the interest rates relative to the growth rates? And broadly speaking, are there any countries that stand out to you where that differential is, is perhaps positive? I mean, if we look really at the, the uh, most uh, recent years, uh, there's been a significant increase um, because inflation has been high mm -hmm. and uh, the 
share of local debt uh, is, is large and uh, or has increased over time, especially in Africa. Uh, and on top of that, uh, central banks were forced to hike, right? So uh, from this point of view, um, Africa stands out with the um, uh, highest implied interest rate and it's well above uh, growth. Uh, the countries that really look kind of, let's say, uh, uh, not good uh, on these two indicators, uh, or on this indicator, sorry, are Egypt and Ghana. Mm -hmm. uh, both these countries have um, implied interest rates uh, well above uh, their um, uh, growth. Um, Mm -hmm. And and now I guess the situation will become even more challenging, right? Because we have interest rates probably staying relatively high, although I know a couple of your countries have started to cut rates, uh, but growth is likely to slow and inflation is certainly already slowing. So let's see how that pans out. But uh, there's a sense that maybe fiscal might need to do a bit more on the consolidation side to achieve this more sustainable path. That's right. I mean, if, yeah. if they consolidate fiscally, uh, if monetary policy manages to lower inflation, uh, mm -hmm. then uh, things should improve. Again, let's not forget that the short-term debt component is quite significant, right? In like Correct. this is especially visible in Egypt's case, right? It can fluctuate quite a lot, either positive or negative direction, right? Okay, so maybe last question for you, Nikolai, before we bring Katie back into the mix. Uh, when we talk about fiscal consolidation, uh, what can EMH countries really do here to consolidate on the fiscal side? It's, you know, it's not an easy situation. Obviously, if they consolidate too much, there's too much austerity, then you slow growth. That's bad for debt sustainability. So there's usually a fine balancing act here that needs to be achieved uh, for the major EMs. When we discussed India and South Africa, we concluded, well, you can spend a bit less tax, a bit more, but primarily it's about boosting growth and trying to ensure reforms that, that boost growth. But again, not an easy task. Uh, what's your sense for the EMH countries? I mean, how easy is it, is it here to, is there any low hanging fruit? As far as I'm, I'm not consulting. sure whether there is a long hanging fruit. I, I mean, I would say it's close to impossible task, you know, to uh, pursue fiscal consolidation and at the same time uh, achieve higher growth. It's it's not easy for sure, right? And we see it quite well in the case of uh, edge economies, at least, right? Uh, what's again a bit different for edge economies than uh, other, let's say, larger EM economies, right? It's like the revenues uh, to GDP are in general, rather low, right? With the exception of uh, GC and Europe Edge, um, we have very low revenues to GDP. So that's one route. Uh, Is that about to, widening the, the tax base? Is that it's about, about widening the tax base? It's about yeah. increasing taxes, right? And, and mm -hmm. in some cases, mm -hmm. we are seeing this as a direction of uh, policies uh, implemented by uh, by the IMF. Let's take Sri Lanka, for example, mm -hmm. but it's not the only example. So clearly, this is one alternative. And Sri Lanka's case, it's actually quite sensible to go in that direction because uh, revenues to GDP are, are in... Uh, uh, single-digit territory, right? So mm. uh, clearly, yeah. clearly, that's that's uh, uh, problematic. But it's not the only way to do it, right? I mean, uh, there is also uh, a need to deal with structural reforms, um, and in this case, Egypt is a very good example. Uh, IMF program focuses mostly on structural reforms, right? And potentially, this type of reforms are going to deliver over time uh, better growth. Not short term, but over the medium term. 
What I will say in the case of, you know, some of Latin, uh, Latin America edge, um, you know, while debt levels are still higher than when they, where they were before the pandemic, we have seen more concerted efforts on the fiscal side to reduce deficits. Um, so, you know, two recent stories that we should highlight are um, Costa Rica and El Salvador that have managed to do actually pretty large primary um, primary uh uh, you know, fiscal balance consolidations. Um, you know, Ecuador was another one up until this year that had managed to reduce reduce deficits a certain amount. But again, you know, the issue there is that um, you know it can weigh on growth, and um, you know, and 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 therefore, um, you know, more needs to be done um, to to you know to to get debt on a on a more sustainable path. Got it. Okay, so maybe we can shift gears a little bit and and bring the discussion around. Um, external balances and financial stability risks uh, into the discussion a bit. So Katie, we started off at the beginning, I, I was talking about how the major EMs have been remarkably resilient in the face of adverse shocks. And, and we highlighted the role of domestic private savings, the fact that most major EMs were not running particularly large current account deficits. Uh, in fact, many of them had, had managed to improve their external balances. Um, still vis-a-vis -vis, um, pre-pandemic levels, uh, it sounds like EMEDGE is relying a lot more on external funding. So where does that leave them in terms of vulnerabilities? What are FX reserves doing? Where, where, where are you concerned on the financial stability side of things? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I mean, I think considering, um, you know, we do in general for our forecast for 2023, we do see narrower deficits relative to last year, um, both on the external side and fiscal deficits uh, for the most part. But again, that's that's primarily, you know, an improvement for, say, the, the commodity importers and worsening for the exporters. Uh, um, so, you know, we can we can talk to that um, afterwards. So, but that is, you know, in terms of in terms of things getting a little better, that's the case of Central America, Africa, um, and the Balkans, uh, and that's mainly a function of oil. Um, where things are getting slightly worse again is is you know parts of um, you know East Europe Edge and the GCC. Um, but as I said, again, it's it's really there. You know, the buffers are strong enough that we're not we're not as concerned. Um, but you know, granted, um, you know, given the um, you know, this where there have been improvements in twin deficits. I mean, clearly, you know, we should see reserves starting to, you know, some some of the pressure to come off reserves. Um, and again, in most cases, you know, reserves are are close to that, you know, which is deemed adequate by the IMF. But you know, in the cases that where where reserves have really, um, you know, are really the reserve burn is really um, accelerated um, and over the last few years, it's in places where you have this sort of you know these large twin deficits. Um, again, sometimes it's it's these um, you know it's uh, it's countries that have um, that have you know lost market access um, have gone to the IMF. But but more than anything, um, an important differentiating factor is is there is there intervention in FX in their FX markets in the sense that um, you know where there has been you know more effort to resist devaluation, um, you know, that has clearly put um, more pressure on reserves given given the presence of twin deficits. And so here, you know, we can point to places like Pakistan, Egypt, Kenya as examples. Um, and, in, and in most cases, actually in all cases at this point, um, you know, as, as those pressures have built and, and also with the, with the presence of the IMF there, um, you know, each one of them has had to kind of um, loosen the reins again um, and, and devalue. Uh, mm. But as I said, I mean, I think that, in other words, you know, we have, um, 
you know, we do have we this twin deficit story is still there, but again, where 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 FX regimes have allowed for a degree of um, you know have a degree of flexibility and they you know kind of and have taken the adjustment on, the the stress has been less. It's as I said, it's really in these places where there's mm. been more sort of control on the FX that we 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 perceive more problems. All right, yeah. So both of you have mentioned uh, during the discussion the differentiation between oil exporters and importers, and it's clearly an important distinction uh, we need to make, uh, given how much commodity prices have been moving uh, over the past uh, year or so. Uh, so oil prices are now down fairly sharply from year-ago levels, uh, so a broad range of commodity prices are correcting lower. Is that raising additional concerns for the EMEDGE economies? Many who whom many of whom are obviously oil exporters, and is there a certain level of oil prices that we would start to become more worried about fiscal and external balances in these countries? Nora, I'm going to give you the favorite answer of economists, which is that it depends. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, so to remind our readers um, or you know our listeners uh, more more uh, aptly. Our, you know, JP Morgan's house oil forecast for, for this year is $90 per barrel. Um, but of course, you know, at present market oil prices are oscillating at about $75 a barrel. Um, so, you know, just based off that, we would say, you know, just, just based on relative oil um, exposures, we would say that the oil exporters are more, um, you know, would take a larger hit from the decline in prices than importers would benefit. Um, so many of our exporters' fiscal break-evens, um, or you know, in to, to to translate it out of economic jargon, um, the price that would basically bring the fiscal accounts to balance, um, you know, they're generally higher than current levels. And so, you know, given the de given the the decline in oil prices, um, that would put more pressure on fiscal fiscal balances. Um, whereas, you know, the the current account, um, the break-even for the current account, or again, or the price that would you know, bring that to, to balance, um, you know, we're still more or less clearing for most of these economies. Mm -hmm. um, so in other words, it's, you know, it's relatively comfortable for the exporters, uh, save for a few such as, you know, Ecuador, um, Nigeria, Angola, where, um, you know, the large buffers that, I, that I've been alluding to throughout this podcast, you know, they just don't exist in the same way. And so, you know, they would, they would come under, you know, more pressure. Um, and that really speaks to, for example, in Nigeria, you know, we've seen more in the last couple of weeks, we've seen more, um, you know, pivot from the new administration to address, you know, some of the fuel subsidy issues, you know, discussions around the FX regime. And so, again, that just speaks to the need, uh, you know, for adjustment in that case. Um, but what I will say, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, importers are they're they're more dependent right and so with oil with lower oil prices they are going to they're going to save on their trade bills um and you know in a in a case where lower oil prices were being driven by say a u.s recession that would hit you know for example services exports or remittances or just general goods exports um you know maybe maybe a decline in that would offset this the savings that they would get from lower oil prices but again you know we've just been you know we've been talking about kind of this um overall support of global growth environment um that we're seeing and so you know at this point i think actually it's um you know things feel things feel pretty pretty goldilocks for some of these importers um mm -hmm. and there again i would point to some of the countries in the balkans and the and central america so again i think in the end it, it, again as i said it depends but i would say that overall you know for us you know 
oil prices at 70 to 80 dollars a barrel is sort of a sweet spot for many of these countries um you know much oil much lower prices again um you know those exporters with low buffers would be the ones who would be most exposed yeah okay so look taking everything that you two have have told me um it sounds like we're not particularly overly concerned at this point in time, given that growth is holding up and, you know, we're not seeing those recession risk materialize, but clearly there is a worse scenario out there, right? It's certainly, and we attach a fairly high probability to it. And I'm talking about the scenario of further increases in policy rates from the Fed. Again, not our base case, but, you know, fairly large probability that that might happen, that they might need to resume um, hikes after pausing, given how sticky inflation is, and also fairly high probability of we have a recession in the forecast, but that recession could actually end up being uh, more of a hard landing. In that kind of more adverse global scenario, uh, which are the countries we should be worried about? Uh, Nikolai, I'm going to give you the last word here. What's your top three in that kind of environment? Which are the EMH countries that we need to watch out for? <laughs> That's a tough one, Nora, and I'm not sure I want to <laughs> pinpoint uh, who's, who's next, okay. you know. Uh, region, let's talk regions, let's talk regions then. I mean, um, definitely it's it's uh, more challenging in two regions that I mentioned quite a bit when I spoke. Um, one is Africa, the other one is um, Asia Edge, right? This, mm -hmm. These two regions really carry most of the risks, I would say. Uh, but Again, I would stay away from uh, nominating countries uh, at this moment in time. Um, outside of uh, these two uh, regions, I would say things are looking better and probably the resilience even to uh, a severe downturn at the global level, it's probably better. I don't know, Katie, would you, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree in just in terms of the broad generalization on regions. And I would say that, um, you know, we, again, it really depends on the mixture of the backdrop, right? So in the case of, say, Central America, um, you know, those economies have, have really been adjusting well. Um, and, you know, many of them have kind of locked in, uh, you know, have, have relationships with the IMF, um, same with other parts of Latin America. But again, you know, if we're talking about a severe downturn where, you know, remittance flows, which are an important source of funding for some of these economies, those also decline a lot. Mm -hmm. Or if tourism falls a lot, then things look much more challenging, right? So again, it, it, um, you know, it, it, it really depends on the, on the mixture of, of, um, of factors when we, when we get there, I think. Exactly. Okay. So we'll, we'll have to leave it there. It's a really interesting discussion and, uh, well, we shall find out within six to nine months what happens. Um, thank you both of you for joining. Uh, thank you to our listeners and we hope to continue the conversation on the next Global Data Pod.